You're listening to the Artistic Finance Podcast, Show 61. On today's show, I interview theater artist Elena Newell. We discuss We See You What, the movement calling for racial equality in American theater. In June 2020, they published a list of demands for making American theater more equitable. This is the first of two episodes in which Elena and I go through the document and discuss point by point each demand that relates directly to finance. Some are free or inexpensive, which theater companies of any size can accommodate. Others will require a bit of money and are aimed at big theater companies and commercial productions, including Broadway. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome, everyone, and a special welcome to my patrons. I am your host, Ethan Steimel, and today I welcome Elena Newell to the podcast. Welcome, Elena. Thank you for having me. We are recording this on July 22nd, 2021. So we are currently amidst a COVID-19 pandemic. We're also amidst the Black Lives Matter slow burn that is just existent in the United States. We are currently under a Stop Asian Hate campaign. And then the latest thing this month is that there are protests in Cuba about inequality, specifically racial inequality as well, going on there. So that's a bit of what's going on in the world. So basically, the world is on fire at this current time. Yeah, and there's so many countries and regions we didn't even cover and all that. (laughs) So Elena, well, first of all, I just want to say we have sort of been trying to do this episode since November of 2020. And now in July, we're finally doing it. So eight months later. (laughs) We we made it finally. Thank you for being patient with me. (laughs) Okay, so, so I have like four icebreaker questions right off the top here. So the first one is... Could you describe your demographics for us? I am a cis female woman who is 21. I am African-American, relationship single, LOL. Uh, (laughs) Education, I just graduated getting my BFA in musical theater. um, And I am currently based in Charlotte, North Carolina, but I will be moving to New York relatively soon. Well, congratulations on graduation. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah. So I am a self-proclaimed artist in all of the fonts, acting, singing, but also directing and writing. I have a podcast, Fourth Wall, where we talk about discrimination and bias within the theater industry. We bring on um, Broadway artists and regional artists, and we talk to them about where they are in the world, how do they feel we can combat bias and injustice. And we're talking to both sides, so people who benefit from these systems that are set in place and the people who are being currently oppressed as well. And that's been really cool. I've been really excited about it. I don't know if it's you guys as the host or if it's your guest, but you guys, the way your conversations are like so casual, it's really like fun to listen to. Well, thank you. We try. Like I always tell them before we start the interview, I'm like, I'm going to obviously ask a little bit about your career because that's why people are clicking because they know who you are. However, That's not the goal of this conversation. So once we talk about that for a minute, we're going to try to move on to something else quickly. Okay, so now your creative and financial personalities. What is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? A play specifically, like musicals are great. Yes, that is what my degree is in. However, there's something about just like a straight play and you're just everybody sitting in the audience and it's so quiet You know it's not real. The actors know it's not real. But for some reason, our bodies don't know it's not real. So we feel like we're going through this intense 
journey with these people and all they have is themselves and the words. Obviously, they might have a set and things like that. But for the most part, if the actors aren't great, if the words aren't great, then you pretty much have nothing. And so the fact that people are able to take that and mold it and capture somebody's attention for longer than like 12 seconds is astounding to me. And I'll I, I'll never get over it. I'm so excited to see live shows again once it's completely cool to do so. I love that take on it because I'm always thinking like I love a musical like I want some tap dancing I want some like something to distract me and just take me out of everything I like this take on the play of it's just an actor and it's just words and that can entertain people for three hours that is sort of amazing you're right it feels more of like a craft it feels more like blue collar when you think of it like that like they're just using the skills they've been given to try and make something like, I do love a musical. I love a good tap number, truly. And of course, that does take a lot of work as well. But having that music, having that spectacle, it does give you a little bit of room to not fail. But if you, if something slips up, you can fall back on it a little bit more. And so I think if you like the real technicians in the art, and I love to call artists technicians because that's what they are. And so to watch them in that kind of playground is so that kind of shows you like who really knows what they're doing. And it's really exciting. All right. Your financial personality. Are you good or bad with money? <laughs> I'm up and down. Let me tell you. There are some months where I'm really in it and I'm reading all the books and I'm listening to all the podcasts and things like that. And my finances are great. And then being an artist is so spontaneous. You can be like, oh, well, there's this audition and it's in L.A. And even though I don't have the funds for that, I can find the funds and we'll make it happen. And then it kind of throws you off of your preset budgets and plans but also i'm like understand the fact that like i am a young person that it's okay if the next month or so or the next year or so i'm not perfect with it i'm not really hard on myself i try to keep everything with within reason not spending more than i make things like that but other than that i don't have a ton of pressure on myself to do super well <laughs> all right so now on to today's discussion which is about we see you what and I just want to throw a disclaimer out <laughs> that we are just two people chatting about this topic. Neither one of us has any authority from this organization. It's a leaderless thing. We are just chatting about it. Observations from us as theater practitioners. Yes, not at all affiliated. <laughs> Please. So this ba very basic question, what is We See You What? So basically, in a, and this is not accurate. Oh, gosh, if. If you work for this organization, I'm sorry in advance, but it's basically, it feels like, like a very secret society, but it's basically um, a social media campaign, it feels like, that strives to not only shed light on the what the reality is of this theater industry and this artist industry, but then also call people out and by name if needed and demand specific like demand specific things to create change instead of just saying this issue was wrong we're saying this issue was wrong and here are 30 reasons or 30 ways we can fix it and rectify it and get on the road to try to even out this playing field that is so skewed yeah and i will say if our explanations don't make sense you can go to their website we see you what.com what is w-a-t which stands for white american theater and you said it's a social media campaign, and it certainly is, but their website has a lot more on it. And specifically, there's a 29-page document of demands. And I would also want to add that I believe the goal of this organization is in this moment to point out white supremacy in theater 
and saying that theater in the United States is racist. And we're going to point it out and we're going to highlight it. They are taking action and making action. Again, it's a leaderless organization. I don't think anybody gets paid to do it. I'm pretty sure all these people are volunteers. It's anonymous. Nobody can be a spokesperson for it, even if they wanted to, not that anybody would want to. Okay, so that's sort of what it is. It started in June of 2020, and that's when they released the statement and started their campaign. And so now what we are going to specifically do in this next hour is me being me, I read this document, I decided to notate everything that was related to money. So there's a lot of things that are social, etc. And I was just like, I'm just going to pull the money things out. The answer to some of these demands is going to be we can't afford it. And that's like an easy cop out answer. That's why I'm sort of want to go through. So what I did was I made a list of everything that pertained to money. And that's what we're going to discuss. And I think I pulled out 46 things. And if you go to artisticfinance.com, I'm going to post this with the episode. My list that I just gleaned, it's not official list or anything, but it's just me pulling things out. So if I say a number here on the episode, it corresponds to the number that is on our website. So number one, don't make each project similar, aka mix it up from the standard financially viable model. Because a lot of times theaters will say, we're going to do anything goes because we know it will sell tickets. And we're not going to do a BIPOC play because no one's going to buy a ticket to it. And also thinking about specifically when it comes to black stories, the ones that are financially viable, I'm using air quotes for the people listening, tend to be like trauma porn, essentially. So although that may bring in a lot of money, usually it's an extremely traumatic story about black bodies that were usually written by a white person trying to talk about these issues and those are the and it's proven to be financially viable when you look at which black films win the oscars which black films black shows are nominated for emmys things like that a lot of them are in this traumatic category talking about things that are very detrimental or stereotypical about like bipoc communities and so yes they do make a lot of money but having black bodies in a space doesn't equate to accurately representing black bodies in a space and so whether you're not putting any black stories in your season or you're putting these specific traumatic black stories in your season neither one of those fixes the problem um the long-term problem any so when they're saying don't make each project similar don't use those same five plays how many times are you going to see these theaters say oh we're going to do august wilson because that's like the only black playwright they can think of when they think of black playwrights even though there's so many, there's hundreds of new ones coming out every single week. There's a new playwright. There's a new director. There's things like this coming out every t- every week and they're moving to film and television because right now they're being honored more there. They're being respected more there um, because there's not a space for them here. And so not only taking the time to license these plays, but licensing licensing new plays, which can actually be cheaper than licensing really popular black plays that are already made going to something like new play exchange if you're talking about we don't have the money to do this it's actually going to cost you less to get the rights to do a season a two or three week stint of this new play and bringing the playwright down and getting giving them a chance to workshop their material with actors that can actually be cheaper than trying to get the most popular black play that you could think of right now okay that's a really good way to look at it i wasn't even thinking about that find a bipoc playwright that has a new play that wants you to do it oh yeah good call you just it just <laughs> takes investigating you know to know instead of just because it's easy to give a blanket statement well we don't have the budget for this we don't have the space for this but if you just sit there and think about it there's easy ways to 
not make everyone happy, but to create some kind of compromise. All right, number two demand, eliminate 10 out of 12s and the six-day rehearsal week. So what is a 10 out of 12, by the way? Yes, oh man. So a 10 out of 12 is basically, you'll have a 12-hour day that the actors and the technicians, and usually the technicians are there all day. They usually don't even get a real 10 out of 12 but you're basically required to be there for 10 out of the 12 hours of the day. So from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., for example, you're working all day. You might get a two-hour break in the middle, or they might break it up however they need. And that's usually for the technical rehearsals right before an opening of a show um, when they're combining the acting and the lighting and the sound and all of that kind of stuff. That's what a typical 10 of 12s is set up like. And then also historically, theater does works Tuesday through Sunday and takes Monday off. So they're working six days a week. My thing that I've said on this podcast a hundred times is that actors get a 10 out of 12. They get a 12-hour day. The technicians work 16-hour days, six days a week. The thing about this demand is that it's the zeitgeist of today's age of saying we can't just work ourselves. You know, when, when you're working a 16-hour day or even a 12-hour day, six days in a row, like you just, when do you sleep? When do you run your life? Like, how do you have a life? And it's hard. With artists, this issue always comes up because people assume because you're having a career in the arts and it's something that you claim to be passionate about, oh, well, you should want to do it every day. You should want to do it 24 hours a day. And no, it's even if we love it, we're choosing it for a career. So in the same way that it would be ridiculous for you to tell your customer sales rep to work for 12 hours in the day and get one two hour break and that'll be it. And then they're on their feet, they're moving, they're exerting both physical energy, emotional energy, depending on what the show is about. Expecting them to do that and just take it simply because, oh, well, you're an artist, you should love it. That's always the standard when it comes to paying actors and technicians fairly and giving them an, an actual livable working environment. Uh, that's always the the defense, which I hate. But with this, like people can't sleep. They can't have a second job, especially these smaller theaters. They don't have the money to pay you a livable salary or wage to where this can be your only job. So even if you did have the energy to go through these 10 of 12s, can you even afford to do that? Do you have other jobs, other obligations, people with children, people with responsibilities, things like that, taking that all into consideration. And it also just proves to not be necessary. It's just a way for them to kind of condense all of that work into one weekend instead of taking the time to spread it out. I just think it's based in laziness, honestly. Of the company, not the technicians. And I think if there's an argument that, oh, we do want to keep a 10 out of 12, I think there's an argument that, okay, that's fine. Just pay people a lot. <laughs> you know, pay people a fair wage to do that. Um, and then I think naturally people will not do that so much. Right. <laughs> Paying them and then also creating scenarios where, okay, then if we're going to do a 10 of 12s, they don't have to be in costume until the last two hours. They don't have to be wearing the proper footing or anything like that, uh, footwear until the last hour or so. They don't have to be singing continuously. They don't have to act continuously. They're given certain set breaks throughout the whole time. Once you tell them, oh, well, then just treat them fairly and equitably, then they kind of be like, oh, no, we don't need 10 of 12. Number three, mandatory estate and financial planning for all employees. I really like that one. And I think that could actually be free. Like if there's a small theater that, you know, wants to do some of these demands, but like even like Schwab would probably come in and do it for everyone or Edward Jones. I guarantee if you reached out and said, hey, could you come spend a day with us? But I really like that one a lot, you know, probably because this is artistic finance. Even just like one day a year, if you met with somebody and just sort of talked about your life and your goals and all that, 
I think that's pretty great. I agree. I agree. Especially in this like very gig economy based career. You're not a lot of the people who do this job full time. They have to learn on their own, usually the hard way, how important finances are. And they usually have to go out of their way to figure out how everything works. And something that simple could keep an actor happy with you, could keep their work relationship positive so that in the future they're not. Maybe they don't need to worry about casting as much as they normally do or going out as much as they normally do because they're not creating any kind of toxic relationship with the workers they have now. All right. Demand number four, eliminate, quote, years of experience, end quote, and education requirements for jobs. So that this this one I actually think has been organizations have been doing this somewhere somewhere in the middle. I don't think I also don't think this costs anything specifically because a lot of the times when I notice specifically in theaters they're still offering very low wages but demanding these extremely high degrees and they the reason they can't find these positions is because they're asking people who Degrees state that they should be getting offered certain amounts. They're offering way below that. But because it's in the arts, they're expecting people to take it. When one, college education does not equate to your ability to do a specific job, especially in the arts. A lot of this, especially when you're looking at these like diversity, equity and inclusion positions, that's more about how are you working in your community? How do you view the world we're in? How do you view the city that we're specifically in? And how can we be more equitable and how can we include more people around us you don't really need a master's in theater to know how to do that um and that usually removes you from those positions because to get that to that level you're usually a part of a certain socioeconomic background which automatically removes you from some some of the issues that need to be addressed automatically so i think yeah i agree Get rid of it. Yeah, I don't think that costs anything for the organization posting the job listing, but I do think that affects people getting those jobs because if, say, there's an artistic director job that is, pays more than whatever you are doing, but you can't apply for it in theory because it says you need X years of experience, I think that's with you know holding people back from potentially the higher paying job listing. Right. Uh, number five, cease most favored nations. So anybody that's listened to this podcast enough knows what Most Favored Nations is. It's when you have a group of nine actors and you say to them all, we are going to pay you all the exact same so nobody can get more. That's an easy way for people to take, specifically in what I've witnessed in my personal experience, for them to get these BIPOC artists who are usually larger in their notoriety and their popularity than their white counterparts in the show, but based on the this most favorite nations clause they're allowed to get paid the same amount regardless of what their role is and what energy they're required to do whether they have to have more rehearsals have more time to work on different parts of the project they're still getting paid the exact same amount as everyone else just because they've all agreed to this clause i think that really eliminates there's something to say about it if you have 20 years of experience in this career and you've built a name for yourself um just because this company has decided that you shouldn't be limited, I don't think. Obviously, it's all for up for discussion, up for negotiation. And I think that's where it comes down to is let there be room for negotiation. And specifically with BIPOC artists, they have trouble feeling like they have the power to negotiate because they just feel like they're replaceable, that they're the most replaceable because there's less jobs for them. So there's more people hungry for it. It's hard for them to specifically BIPOC artists to say no to those kind of clauses, even if it's damaging to them because they know that they're easily replaceable and it's easier for them to be villainized in those situations. It, although it might cost companies more to pay people what they are worth, it costs, I think it'll cost less in emotional turmoil. <laughs> I agree. And I also just have a 
vendetta against most favored nations because I've seen people say most favored nations and then find out later that, oh, X got more, X got less, or their special deals were made that, oh, yeah, they were paid technically this, but there were other incentives given to certain people. Even though it's meant to be equitable, I think it's really only equitable when the people lowest on the totem pole sort of come together and say, that's what we want. But I don't think it should come from top down ever. Yeah, because it can always, like you said, it can always be, so for your upfront, this is what everybody will be making, but then you don't know what people were talking about in terms of commissions and percentages on the back end, which is usually how they pay the people they care about less, less, so that they can pay the big people that they want more in the long run. Uh, number six, I actually don't know how this is financial, so maybe it'll be apparent, but I can't figure it, but be intersectional. Stop clumping BIPOC with white women and LGBTQ+. Mm. I would say when people have not quotas, I would say, for hiring, when they're saying, oh, we're going to commit to hiring 50 diverse, 50% diverse artists. Um, but when you include all of that into diverse, I've seen so many announcements where it's like, oh, look at this uh, team of all women on this show, but they're all white women. So what is that? What like in the long run? Yes, that's great that more women are getting these jobs. But if they're all white women, then we're still leaving out extremely marginalized groups while still giving the companies what they want. If they don't want to hire BIPOC artists, if they don't want to hire LGBTQ artists, they can still hire white women and say, well, we're still being diverse and we still have honored our commitment to cast diverse actors and diverse technicians and diverse directors and so I guess that would be my guess on how to put that into financial is that when you put them all together, um, you're also ignoring the obvious pay gaps between them. White women still make more than BIPOC women. They still make more than LGBTQ women, things like that. So just because um, they're in these positions doesn't mean that you're still not, you know, putting other groups at a disadvantage. Number seven, get away with main stage and second stage. Anybody that doesn't know, you very often, second stage is the smaller theater, and that's where companies will put on the BIPOC productions. Um, and usually they say things like, because they won't sell tickets, so we put them in the smaller theater. It's just you have to try. <laughs> like, there's so many times I've heard people say, well, nobody's going to come to this show, and then it sells out. Well, nobody, your main patrons may not come to this show, but maybe it's not for them. Maybe we can do more work on our marketing side to bring in those people so we're not losing money. Number eight, free tickets to indigenous tribes on which their homeland or the theater is sitting on their homeland. I want to say it sounds like that's going to cost money, but I really think you can easily do that by just offering standby tickets to indigenous tribes from the from that land. Yeah, yeah. And also like Broadway producers and things like that, they always get like handful of tickets that they can just give out to their equally rich friends that can easily just buy their own tickets. So instead of guaranteeing that and letting top not, uh, top build actors and producers and directors have their choice to bring in anybody that they want take all of those free tickets or available tickets and then put them towards that and you're not losing anything because you always have they always every company has that little section of tickets reserved where their patrons or their most valued customers can get free opportunities nine put an explanation of how the land the theater sits on was obtained and have that published in the lobby of the theater. That would cost money to do that research and put up the plaque, but you could also put up a piece of paper and it would be very cheap. <laughs> also, Google is such a thing right now where it w I don't think it would cost that much money to figure it out. 
I agree. <laughs> okay, stop using, this is number 10. Stop using BIPOC money for BIPOC productions and or overhead. Use regular funding for those projects. This must be something I don't understand. What, what I interpreted from that, because I've seen it happen, is um, majority white owned theaters using uh, BIPOC grants and things like that because they're going to put on one show starring black actors. And that's instead of giving that money to black organizations trying to create authentic black content and things like that, when white institutions take all of the grant money and national money that's available to those specific categories and taking them away from the people who have been creating companies and programs specifically by and for BIPOC artists. Um, that's what I think when I look at that. Number 11, publish how much money is spent on white businesses versus BIPOC. So I think that's just looking at the annual budget of your theater and making that public of how much went to white versus non-white. Yeah, and that one and then like the next couple ones are kind of in a similar vein. Yeah, so 12, publish how much money earned by white artists versus BIPOC artists broken down by job type. 13, publish an organizational budget. And 14, publish salaries. Those are all just saying pay transparency. Yeah, and that wouldn't cost anything. I mean, in the long run, it might cost patrons if they're unhappy with the way that you're spending the money that they keep giving to your company. But that's more of a you problem. I think a, <laughs> a lot of people, because people are behind organizations, and a lot of people slash organizations are afraid of making their money public. Like public companies sometimes do have to put out a budget. But everyone's sort of afraid to say how much they're spending and et cetera. And I think that's just from public scrutiny. If you're a theater, you're by nature being part of the community. It's your thing. So, you know, whether you like it or not, I think that's a good thing to be public about what you're doing. Um, because if, if you're afraid of being scrutinized, you should be being scrutinized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 15, pay BIPOC artists to participate in talkbacks and marketing. I think this one is specifically about when it comes to contract negotiation, because a lot of top build performers, this would be more applied to either non-union or regional work. But because I know that with like with SAG-AFTRA, with Broadway specifically, I'm pretty sure that their pay included in that is knowing that they are responsible for a certain amount of marketing uh, programs, a certain amount of interviews, things like that. Um, but that's usually only offered, uh, that inclusion of that pay is usually only offered to the top build performers who statistically tend to be white just because most shows tend to have white artists as their leads um, instead of accurately um, paying these people to participate. I guess it depends on the industry and the region just because sometimes peep talkbacks are voluntary. Like it'll be after a show and they'll say, if you want to stay, you can. If you don't want to, then you can go home. So I think it's this is more for regional non-union type of theater and indie films, things like that, where they don't have the budget to initially offer that to you, but they try to throw it in at the end and you don't feel protected um, or you don't have anyone behind you to kind of defend you in that sense. I um, mean, you don't have the money to pay for a lawyer or anything like that to defend you in that contract that you already signed. So I think that's mostly for those venues and those markets. Oh, I'm glad I'm talking to you because I, I was interpreting it as like a bit of tokenism of like, oh, getting BIPOC actors or participants to be at the talkbacks but then that's taking time and energy out of their life 
And so I thought it was pay them for that time rather than just sort of expecting them. Yeah, I, if they, and if they if they are if they're not being paid and other people are, I think it just depends on the industry because certain when you see like a Broadway company performance like Good Morning America, they are all paid to be there. They're not there voluntarily. They're not there because they're scared that they'll get kicked out of the show. But for regional shows, that is the case. They might say, "Hey, at nine a.m., I need you to wake up, and we're not going to add anything to your pay. We just need you to be there." even if that wasn't stated when you signed the contract. And so I think that helps uh, put protection for those regional theaters. Um, it prevents them from manipulating or taking advantage of their local actors. Number 16, no unpaid internships and allow those internships to be entry into a job. And what we said earlier, like they think that artists, just because you love the art means that you, you do it for free. And no, that's not how I feel about it. If, if that was the case, I wouldn't pursue it as a career. It'd still just be a hobby. I mean, can you imagine if somebody likes to go race cars around a track and like they do it because they love it? It's like, oh, yeah, you try to do that for 16 hours a day, six days a week. I suspect it would be very hard to keep racing a car that much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of roll my eyes when people are like, oh, but you're doing what you love. All right. Anybody listening, if you meet me, never say that to me. Yeah. Or when people say, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. No, that's not true. That's not based in truth. Regarding the unpaid internship situation, a lot's going on. Currently, Williamstown Theater Festival, we're, we're all watching in glee as that sort of situation unfolds. I mean, I'm sorry for the technicians working through it all, but we're all wanting to see the demise of those organizations and structures. But Lift the Curtain and Unpaid Arts Internships, uh, that's an organization that's doing amazing work and is all onto the internship situation. Uh, number 17, evaluations must be reflected monetarily with bonuses and raises. To me, I've never had a nine to five job. Like, <laughs> so I, to me, this doesn't really apply, I don't think. I'm guessing it's when you do your yearly evaluation, why even bother if you're not going to get a pay bonus and i guess that would be for like longer running shows like when you're thinking broadway and tours things like that yes i signed to the six month contract but if i'm doing it well and even if i'm bringing more people in if the job is going well and you've already broken even what's the harm in paying these actors more because they performing anything for longer than a month is going to have wear and tear on their body on their emotional state on their mental state things like that that's where i would definitely apply that especially when you're thinking about any kind of long running show um, making sure that you're compensating for the fact that that brings wear and tear and how do we like fairly compensate for that wear and tear. Number 18, eliminate minimum financial contributions for board positions. If you have to donate to be on the board, well, first of all, statistically in the United States, white people have more money than black people. So statistically, you're going to get more white people donating and therefore they're going to be on the boards and they're going to be picking anything goes as the musical. I think that's an obvious thing of don't let it be monetary based in order for you to ha to get your opinion heard. Right, because that also forces the creative directors to then side with them because they're like, well, this person gives us a million dollars a year. So if we want to continue getting that money that we're scared won't come any other way, well, then we're going to have to do whatever they say. And that's actually number 19, which is eliminate monetary rationale for board decisions. Um, number 20, nonprofits. Establish BIPOC adherence ratings for each nonprofit donate money to the communities that stories focus on. For example, a play in Flint must include donating money to Flint. Think of specifically this year with the movie coming out. Think about how many productions are going to be put on next year of In the Heights. Think, Just think about that 
and then think about um, those millions of productions that they're going to do to bring in a lot of money quickly. How many of them are donating to a DACA program or donating to an immigration uh, program or something like that to help the stories that you're hearing about in that show to help them survive instead of just making money off of it. Or even something as basic as like Hairspray, a show about discrimination. Well, then donating to programs that are focusing on um, equality, focusing on making sure that BIPOC voices are heard, things like that. It, I mean, yes, it might take away from their total profits, but I feel like it's worth it. <laughs> 21, no police affiliation, a.k.a. don't fund the oppressive system. I think that's a good one. <laughs> I I agree. <laughs> like, I, this, that's such a big topic. I don't even really want to comment on it. Yeah. Other than saying... I'm down with the, that one. Also, there are other de-escalation techniques and programs that aren't involving the police to handle situations that they may occur. 22, equitable partnerships with BIPOC artists. Give funds when they help fundraise. Do not accept rent or fees enhancement money to put their stories into a season that you can claim as yours and do not make them raise the money for their projects. You know, that this is so funny because this is like, first of all, a good demand. Mm. But so many, actually probably all of these demands apply to everyone, not just BIPOC. It's like eliminate 10 out of 12s. It's like, okay, yeah, it's coming from We See You What, but that is something that is going to help every single theater practitioner live a better life. Right. Because the goal is always, the goal is equity. The goal is making sure that everyone gets treated in the same level with the same level of respect not that anybody else gets treated with a less amount of respect so that bipoc artists can be respected it's so that anyone who enters this field in this industry no matter what they look like or what they believe or anything like that are all getting treated fairly specifically in the past year you know with black lives matter and things like that a lot of these programs and initiatives for highlighting bipoc artists and people in general is just Let's all create like a fair playing ground, not one above the other. And an enhancement money, if a producer has a show and they want to take it to Broadway or off Broadway, what they might do is find a theater somewhere regionally in the United States and they'll reach out to them and they'll say, hey, we'll give you $40,000 if you will take our show and put it into your season. And that way, the producer can sort of try out that show out of town and then get all the kinks worked out and then take it off Broadway or Broadway. I think what this point is saying is for BIPOC stories, take those stories. Don't just go with the producers that are giving you enhancement money. Seek out other stories. Don't just follow the money. Just don't fill your season with only producers that are paying for it. Make sure you're doing other things. Right. And the last section of that, like, don't make them raise their own money. Don't claim that you're having the super diverse season, but all of these new works by BIPOC artists, you made them get their own funding to put the show on. They basically just rented your theater for a space. You can't claim that for your season. Uh, 23, fund sustained growth and multi-year gifts to allow artistry to grow. To me, that's just saying, don't make it all about the ticket sales. Fund the program so that art can happen versus capitalism happen right and it can continuously happen so that there's not just one great event and then it's done but creating like a residency or something where somebody can plant there and help foster something in the community so that you can help others around you you know 24 eliminate budget size determination for grants as BIPOC groups often have small budgets, so cannot access large grants. Yeah, I mean, because the small budget is based on probably what they've heard in the past, so not thinking they can get a larger grant or a larger budget because they've never been granted one in the past. 
pretty much all the big regional nonprofit theaters are steeped in a white supremacist system. They, because of the rules, they have all the huge budgets and therefore they're getting all the grant money. And so this is saying give grant money to smaller groups and BIPOC groups right. rather than just giving it to Roundabout Theater or Manhattan Theater Club. or right. Nobody's discounting those theaters. Nobody's <laughs> discounting that. Just because they have the million-dollar budgets, they continue to get the money. Okay, 25, make a grant access rubric and make it transparent to rebuild trust in the grant-giving process. That one's so good. I'm, I agree. I agree. Yeah, these are so specific, but also so broad at all at once. And they're perfect. But I mean, the grant thing is like, I can't tell you because also grants, it's like so many times you have to be around for two years in order to even access a grant. So it's like you have to financially sustain yourself for two years. And then once again, if you're doing it on a shoestring budget, the grants you're going to get are shoestrings. Make it a rubric. Say this is what you can do. Make it a game, basically. Like make it like here's the puzzle. And if you do all this, then... You can do it. I think that's good because I think grants are so insider trading in a way. One, you have to know how to write it. Two, you have to know somebody involved who can also help you write, like tell you how to write it. And then three, the people making those determinations, like it's it's buddy buddy, you know. So I actually I really like this number twenty five. And that all costs so much money. Like my mom, like her job for like twenty years was a professional grant writer and. You have to hire those people if you want to get your grant accepted because there's so many. See, in the performance industry, there's always these secret rules that nobody tells you you have to follow in order to be successful in it. And so you always have to pay money or find other resources to figure out what those secrets are just to get a foot in the door, which is insane. 26. Provide funding for audits. Audit is basically a third party coming in and, and reviewing. So financially, a financial audit, that would be looking over the budget. If you've made other you know, rules for your organization, like we're going to use BIPOC businesses, we're going to do BIPOC plays, whatever. Make sure you provide money so that a third party can come in and say, okay, you're, you're doing what you said you're doing. Right. And just providing transparency. Going back to some of the previous points of publishing salaries and publishing your budget, if you want to do the right thing and you want to be transparent, but for whatever reason, there's rules that you can't make that public, but the auditor can say, Yes, they're doing it or they're not doing it. And here's some things, but we'll leave the details private, but know that they were audited. Right. And an an issue with there is that they've had like actors equity audit certain situations. Like this year, there was a popular topic about like the cats tour and how people weren't getting paid fairly. And although equity said they would do the audit because equity is also a lot about insider trading and they're working with these big producers anyway. Even though they said there was no problem, there was no proof of that, that there was actual a professional audit done. So just getting that all taken outside of the house and even the houses adjacent to these same companies. Uh, 27, provide overhead funding for BIPOC groups. If you're going to put a BIPOC show into the season, don't make them take care of the budget. You know, if they need scripts printed, print the scripts for them. All these extraneous costs, make sure you're helping with that. Yeah. And just no, not taking those shortcuts. And I think it's a similar with uh, number 28, like providing the funding for space and maintenance of space for BIPOC groups, not taking shortcuts, giving them the same opportunities and the same resources you're giving all the other shows and groups. And 29, redistribute grants and funds to BIPOC groups instead of PWIs. PWI, predominantly white institutions. I'm sure everybody knows what that is, but just so you know. Yeah. That goes back to the grants and roundabout getting 
the grants because they have the big budget. Look at where the money is going. It's all about money. Look at where that's going. Adjust the river, you know, so that way it, it flows somewhere else. You know, the river's gone this way for how many years and ages and all that. Unless you build a dam or like a side stream, like it's just going to keep flowing the same way. So look at it and make a conscious choice to put it where it needs to to help BIPOC thrive. Okay, 30, the Broadway League. Lower minimum amount of production fees for membership, which is currently 5% of gross capitalization for a play and 2.5% for a musical. And this is a lot about what we've been talking about earlier in the general sense of just saying that statistically white people have more of that money. They're able to play in these big, you know, arenas because they have the funds to do so. Um, okay, 31. Create special financing for BIPOC audience members and allow them prime seating rather than the sides. Yeah, I, and I think that's just like when you go see Broadway shows, even the ones about BIPOC stories are still majority old white people watching them because they have the money to afford. Broadway tickets are not cheap at all. Like you can get those student rush tickets. You can try your best to get those standing tickets. But the general cost of a Broadway ticket is not it's not cheap in any way, shape or form. You're not going to create a diverse audience and a diverse cast and a diverse uh, community without making it possible for all of those diverse people to afford to even go see a show, let alone be a part of one or work on one. I wonder if there's a nonprofit somewhere that's like students or BIPOC or sign up here and we will like pay for your tickets to the show. Somebody should do that. <laughs> there yeah, has to. There has to be. Jeremy O'Harris with Slave Play, I know he had a system where um, he would guarantee a certain amount of seats uh, for specifically black students in the area and just saying, here's a place you can sign up. If you're a black student, sign up on this website and we'll randomly select like a certain amount of people to see the show for free every day or every other day or something like that. I'm going to look that up and put links to any of those that I find in the show notes, which what number was this? 31. 31. That'll be with number 31. Uh, okay, 32. Lower rental fees and percentages of stop clauses to help shows find their audience. That's basically saying, let a show have time to get its audience, specifically off-Broadway and even Broadway. And this goes back to that whole anything goes is going to sell tickets, but we don't want to try out Choir Boy or something. And that's kind of what's happening right now. It's a little messy. There's a lot of black shows coming to Broadway, but because it's all happening at the top of this, uh, finishing out this pandemic or not finishing it out, but you know, a lot of people are thinking that they're setting them up to fail and they're giving them the space so that everyone can shut up about Black Lives Matter and shut up about discriminations because, oh, look, we put all these plays out here and still gives them the permission to shut them all down a month after opening because they're not making whatever quota they decided that they need to make. And, and the stop clause infamously most or most recently happened with Beetlejuice. It was selling tickets. It was it was gaining an audience but they wanted to put Music Man into the Winter Garden. And Scott Rudin, he said, I need you to call call them out and cancel their show. Because while they are making you money, Music Man is going to make you more money. So kick Beetlejuice out. <laughs> <laughs> so this number is saying, don't do that. Don't kick the shows out to put, to put in the Music Man. You know, let them know or let them grow. Okay, so 33, allow Tony Awards to any theater with 500 or more seats, a.k.a. the Apollo has never been eligible for the Tony Awards. Right. So that would make the Apollo eligible. I agree. <laughs> that's an interesting one. I think that's uh, great. I mean, why not? It's in New York City. It's a big theater. So why not? Right. 
I agree. See, I love We See You Up because it's like, that's just a simple little thing you could do. Yeah. And I could literally talk for hours about everyone. So I'm like trying to shut myself up. I'm like, Elena, please don't talk. <laughs> well, okay. Actually, thank you for saying that because we're at 33. So we're going to stop with this. Allow the Tony Awards to any theater with 500 or more seats so that the Apollo Theater could be eligible for Tony Awards. So we've done up to number 33. We have 34 through 46 still to go, but that's going to be in part two. So make sure you tune back to hear me and Elena talk this through. We've, we'll see if between one and two we get hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if they attack us. Maybe we'll have a really a much more formal statement about what we see you want is for the part two. That's so funny. Okay, so what financial advice can you give to small theater companies that want to support we see you want, but maybe don't have the finances to meet all of these demands that we're talking about? I would say that some progress is better than no progress. And I think what we've discovered is that a lot of these don't actually require that much more in terms of money to get it done and to get it done well. Um, and so I think it just takes a little bit of creativity on their parts, which as a theater, you would expect them to have. Starting somewhere is better than doing nothing and just complaining that all of it's going to cost too much. At least doing the work now and starting where you can and seeing if that can grow into something else later down the line, you know? These are 46 things that I pulled out because they related to money. The 29-page document has plenty of other things that don't require money. You know, things as simple as on the first day of rehearsal, say, this land was originally part of this tribe's land, and we just want to acknowledge it. You know, something as simple as that costs nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, final question for you, Elena. Where can people find out more about you? I'm on uh, all the social medias, but I'll just plug Instagram because that's the one where I'm most common. Uh, Instagram at Elena Newell. It's literally just my full government name. Fourth Wall Season 2 is coming very, very soon, and it's taking a more of a storytelling editorial um, approach as we talk more about really in-depth discussions about race and things like that, which I'm really excited about. So coming soon, you can follow us on uh, on Instagram at This Is Fourth Wall, or find us at, on Facebook at Fourth Wall the Podcast. Um, and we're also streaming on all the main platforms, so Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm guaranteed that we're probably there as well. Um, so give us a listen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. No, you're happy. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy. Thank you. <laughs> you know, eight <laughs> months later, we made this happen. <laughs> Eight months later. <laughs> no, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for doing this and for doing part two. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm so glad to have somebody to just talk this through with. Yeah, <laughs> I understand completely. That was the first of two episodes discussing the financial side of We See You Watts recommendations for American theater. Check back in two weeks to hear the second part of the conversation. Next week, we get an update on the finances of the startup magic show Flavors of Magic, as it prepares to open a live show on August 5th in New York City. If you enjoy the conversations I'm having here on Artistic Finance and want to show your support of the show, you can do that by becoming a patron. You'll get early access to the episodes and a custom podcast feed that includes all bonus episodes. To become a patron, visit patreon.com artisticfinance. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.